Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians? Yes, we are back there. Philippians chapter 2. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your support. It's, I love you and I appreciate your patience towards me and your love. It's a joy to preach to you all week long laboring and it's a great joy to be able to just give you a little bit of what I have been learning and the Lord has been teaching me. So thank you. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, would you stand please if you can? And the reason why we are going to be reading verses 5 through 11, Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to see as we are reading, if you could draw the shape of this story, how would you draw? If you had to draw the shape of all you're about to hear, how would you draw that? And that's important. Because you're going to see it begins in glory, goes down all the way to a cross, and then it comes up once again. Okay, there is a, a U shape here. And that's important because that's what we're going to be seeing today as the story of the Bible itself. So Philippians chapter 2, the wonderful book and a wonderful chapter. And you remember, these verses are kind of the Mount Everest of Philippians. Paul says, Have this fronel, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Oh, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are needy children. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. Your Son, Jesus, told us that we who are evil give good gifts to our children. How much more you who are perfect would not give us what we need. And right now we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to open our ears, our eyes, our hearts. Help me. Help me to be faithful and clear so that you may get all the glory. You deserve all the glory. We pray your blessing upon other churches here in Salem as we prayed earlier this morning. We pray that your kingdom would come. Help your sheep to grow into the likeness of the shepherd. And help us 
right here, right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is absolutely no doubt that stories, stories are very important. Stories shape our lives. Uh, some of you have heard the saying, the one who tells the story rules the world. The one who tells the story rules society. And that's stating primarily that the people who tell the story has much power. And if you think about Germany under the leadership of Hitler, and the Nazi story had a lot of power in the area of Europe. You think about communist China or communist Cuba, and the story told and the power of that story in shaping a whole country. See the power of this story and the one telling this story? Think about the Quran and how it has the power to shape and draw the, the Muslim world into that story. Stories captivate us. There is a reason why you're fascinated with documentaries. It's fun to watch documentaries. There is, there is a story, and this story brings us in. Stories are very important. Just ask the Department of Education in our country. Why so many drag queens teaching libraries? Why so many books with sexual perversion for little kids? And the books are stories. Stories about so-and-so to captivate people. Stories shape us. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on Esther, she says, Every family, society, or culture is defined, at least in part, by the stories of past experiences it shares. Families share common experiences unique to that group of persons. And their stories often have significance only for themselves. Americans share stories such as those of George Washington, the Civil War, Pearl Harbor, New Armstrong's first step to the moon on the moon. By accepting these stories as our story, we are defined as a people, the American people. So what's going on today? It's exactly that. So they're trying to change the story. Have you noticed that? They're trying to change the story. The story that grounded us together as America is now being what? Change. We have a new story to tell. So she continues. She says, We may learn about other stories, other stories, such as the Bolshevik Revolution or Evita's role in Argentina's history, without identifying with them as our story. It is therefore appropriate that God gave us a Bible containing stories that both draw us into relationship with Him and define us as God's people when we accept them as ours. And I'll go further. She says God has given us stories. He has given us one story, the greatest story of all. And all the stories in the Bible are just shaping and forming this major story. And I believe, and the Bible tells us, that the more we learn about this story, 
the drum of redemption. The more we, we let this story to shape our lives, the more we let this story to captivate us, the more we allow this, this drama here to take us in, the more we'll be able to grow in holiness, be satisfied in God, and be a light in this dark world. And also, the more you let this story shape you, the more you will learn about the importance of suffering in making you more like the major actor of this story. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. Amen? Philippians, we're still in Philippians. Turn there with me to Philippians chapter 4. Starting verse 10, or remember Paul is talking about the gift that the Philippians gave to him. And starting verse 10, says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Oh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things in Him who empowers me. I love what Stephen Fow, in his commentary, he writes about Paul. He says, <clears throat> Paul never seeks detach detachment. Detachment from, he's not separating himself from his circumstance as if he was a stoic. He has no feelings or emotions. Rather, he has learned to narrate them as part of the story of God's economy of salvation. As a result, he's not an independent, rational soul buffeted here and there by fortune. Rather, he's a passionate participant in a divinely ordered drama and that's my prayer that as we study the, the scriptures the more we learn about these scriptures the more we realize our role here and we'll become as he talks about paul here passionate participants in the divinely ordered drama of redemption our past present future never be detached separated from the greatest story the story of redemption you know the problem we have is that we try to separate our lives from the sovereignty, the grace, the mercy, and the power of God. So when you look at your past and the pain and the things we went through, suddenly you want to separate that as if God was not in charge there. And now we need to bring to the story to see how beautiful it is and how beautifully it fits with God's drama of redemption. Amen? Here's the plan for this morning, the outline. I'm going to look at, just review last Lord's Day, God's glorious drama of redemption. Then you're going to look at the epic aspect of the drama, and then the comedy aspect of the drama, and then if you have time, the acts of the drama. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. So that's the plan for this morning, and I'll keep an eye on the clock there. So... Just briefly review last Lord's Day. We saw one of the ways, I'm not saying that's the only way, but one of the ways of looking at the Bible as a whole is to see as God's glorious drama of redemption. And remember, talk about drama, borrowing from the 
Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a composition intended to tell a story usually involving conflicts and emotions through action and dialogue, a series of events involving interesting or intense conflict of forces. And I was reminded this week how Calvin, John Calvin, he was a big fan of describing the Bible and God's dealing as a drama. And he often talks about creation as the theater of God. If you have read Calvin, you notice how often he talks about the creation as the theater of God. And he's thinking about as the drama of redemption. So we saw drama, we saw God. God is the author, he's the main actor, he's the subject, he's the object of this story. Especially the God the Son, Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. And it says, starting verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning what? Concerning whom? Himself. Then go to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about whom? Me. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So that's crucial. The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. The Bible is about whom? The triune God. And there is a special spotlight on the Son. Amen? Uh, Michael Horton, he has a book called Covenant and Eschatology, the Divine Drama. He says, it's Jesus Christ as the mediator of the covenant that occupies center stage and unites the drama of redemption in its Old and New Testament acts. Yes, Jesus is the main actor, the spotlight's there, and he holds together this whole drama of redemption. Amen? And it's glorious. It's a glorious drama. Why is it, why is it glorious? Because this God is the God of glory. It's heavy, kavod, the, the word for glory. And it's about God's glory. It's leading to glory. Glory in salvation. Glory in judgment. Amen? And then the word redemption. God, the Bible is God's glorious drama of redemption. And something I didn't mention last Lord's Day is the word redemption, especially in the Bible, is a covenantal word. The word that God used to save His, redeem His covenantal people. So we can look at redemption here and, and think about it's God's covenantal dealings as He's buying a people to form a kingdom for Himself. Let's connect to the word redemption. He's buying a people and making this people a kingdom for Himself. Amen? So that was we saw last Lord's Day. We explore more. Uh, we just need to move quickly here. But here's the other aspect of this drama, and, and that's the aspect that's very important. There is a, a, an ingredient of epic here, epic. And if you study literature, you know what I'm talking about. And here's the definition of the epic genre, a long narrative poem in elevated style, recounting the deeds of a le legendary or remarkable or historical hero. And that's exactly what the Bible is. A long narrative that recounts the deeds of a historical hero. 
Who is the historical hero? Jesus Christ. You remember the last sermon when I preached on Ruth, on the book of Ruth, was the great, something like the great hero of this great story. And we often think that David is the great hero since he, you know, it seems like the book is all pointing to David. But we forget that the story doesn't stop with David, but the son of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ. So the Bible is indeed this beautiful epic. And here are some of the ingredients of an epic. If you're reading an epic, here are some of the major ingredients. Expensiveness, majesty, grandness, the story of a nation. Not simply one individual. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing, bringing a people to himself. An epic has motive of warfare, conquest, kingdom, rulership. Presence of supernatural character. Exalted style. And then you think about, there are some epics in the Bible. Amen? You think about Noah. That's an epic. This hero. Think about Moses. Joshua. David. But they are all pointing to the greatest epic of all. That's the whole Bible itself. Amen? So, as we think about, for example, the book of Exodus or the Exodus account, that, that is, I would say, the most glorious epic account in the Old Testament, the Exodus. It is epic right there. Think about the, what, what's taking place, the seed of the woman, now in war with the serpent. That's how... The book of Exodus opens. You have Pharaoh, Pharaoh in Egypt. Do you remember what he had on his head, Pharaoh? What animal did he carry on his head? A cobra, right? And what is he trying to do in the opening scenes of Exodus? Trying to kill what? The seed of Israel. That goes all the way back to Genesis. The seed of the woman. And the war with the serpent. So you have this wonderful story. Philip Riken, he writes, Exodus is an epic tale of, of fire, sand, wind, water. There are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Almost every scene is a masterpiece. The baby in the basket, the burning bush, the river of blood, the plagues, the angel of death, the crossing of the sea, the man in the wilderness, a mountain. For Jews, for the Jewish people, it's the story that defines their very existence. The rescue that, that made them God's people. For Christians, it's the gospel of the Old Testament. God's first great act of redemption. So, and the Exodus is just a miniature, it's a microcosm of the whole drama of redemption, the epic that we have in the Bible telling our story. Richard Lentz, he writes the following in his book, Identity and Idolatry. He says, the canon can be compared to a theological drama. There is a plot that progresses. There, there are ironic twists and turns to the plot. Characters are thicker than they might at first appear. Speeches take many different forms, monologues, conflict-filled conversations, poetic 
proverbial counsel, even silent, non-verbal forms of communication. So scripture is, his, is historical writing, wisdom, wisdom literature, prophetic challenge, and apocalyptic visions all rolled up into one grand epic, this massive epic. Each book of the scripture is conscious in its role as a distinct act in the drama. Oh, a reader paying attention to the forest as well as the trees will see this. What an epic we have. And may this glorious epic bring us inside the story and see where we are. Amen? Second, or third, here's another aspect of the drama of the Bible, and that's the comedy aspect of this drama. There is a comedy aspect. There is an ingredient of comedy. And sometimes, for us, when we think about comedy, we just think about laughing, right? It's, it's, I'm going to watch a comedy, and you think that comedy is just about laughing, but actually, the comedy as a genre is basically, and I have the definition here, is a drama with a happy ending, a medieval narrative that ends happily. Uh, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, they write... That a full-fledged comic, related to comedy, plot is a U-shaped story that descends into, into potential tragedy and then rises to a happy ending as obstacles to fulfillment are gradually overcome. The progression of a comic plot is from problem to solution. The typical ending of a comic plot is marriage, feast, reconciliation, or triumph over enemies. How does the Bible end? Huh. It's that same pattern. Right? So, kids, you can see here, and you see that the comedy genre is like a smile. Right? Similar to a smile, a smiling face. And that's the picture that we have of the comedy shape. Starts up. Things good, goes down to sort of tragedy, and then goes up again. So think about the Bible. The action begins with a perfect world inhabited by perfect people. It descends into the misery of fallen history and ends with a new world of total happiness and the conquest of evil. And you can see the U-shaped form or this comic form of the Bible is, begins where? creation and ends with what? A new creation, right? Something even better and greater. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the U-shaped structure working itself. From the harmony of Genesis 1 and 2 through the disharmony of Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 to harmony again of a higher kind in Revelation 21 and 22. And as you think about the scriptures, we see that there are many stories with this shape in the Bible. There are many stories in the Bible that they are a sort of comedy. And I would say a, a not totally fulfilled comedy we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, because we see uh, what the Bible uses, and here is a word that uh, some of you have heard, typology. Who here has heard or study the word typology. Okay. In the Bible, we have a sort of recapitulation, but it's never identical. 
Okay, it's never identical as what took place before. So, for example, you have Adam. Here is Adam in a garden, and then what does he do? He rebels against God's word, and he goes into exile. And that same pattern takes place throughout. That's types. We see that happening throughout the, the, the scriptures. And of course, if you want to get the greatest example is Israel as a nation itself. That's basically in the garden of God. They rebel against God's word and they go into exile just like Adam and Eve. So you see that there, there are types. There is a recapitulation, but it's never identical. But we see throughout the Bibles this sort of comic plots, this comic dramas happening. So for example, the book of Judges. Right? The book of Judges. You have stability with Joshua, and then that moves you what? Havoc, chaos down there, and then the Lord does what? Raises a judge, goes up again. Then you have stability. That doesn't last very long, you see, because they need a greater judge. They need a more perfect judge than Samson, Jephthah. Or any other of the judges. You see? How about the book of Ruth? Quickly. Quickly. We have a family in Bethlehem. And quickly from there moves to a death. Exile. They get out of the house of bread. There is famine. Until the Lord in His providence brings a story up to a happy ending. Another example, turn with me to Psalm 22. That's one of the ways of beholding this wonderful genre being developed. So, Psalm 22, we see the king being afflicted. He's being afflicted. And he knows that vindication is coming. Remember, that's a, that's, a, that's a psalm of hope in the midst of suffering. That's why Jesus quotes that psalm from the cross. Because he knows that even though he's suffering a lot, vindication is coming. Salvation will come. That's not the final, the final story, me hanging on this cross. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? It's not that he's desperate. Well, where is God now? No, he's saying, go, go, to, go read Psalm 22. And yes, I'm suffering, but there is vindication coming. That's not the final word here. So you have this suffering, Psalm 22. Psalm 23 be begins the process, the exodus, the shepherd caring. And ends up with Psalm 24. And what is Psalm 24. Open the gates, the mountain of the Lord. So you have this U-shaped here. Uh, how about the book of Job? Or the parable of the prodigal son? Begins, well, downhill, up, a comedy. You see? And all these things are taking place to show us that there is a greater comedy. All these ones are not able to fulfill the plan of God and bring eternal happiness or you can see the the gospels the gospels are a clear example of the comedy right starts with jesus glorious ends to his burial and then goes up again so i was able 
to draw this. <laughs> I don't know how, but I was able to come up with that in my in my study. And, and, and after I listened to a, a very interesting lecture by Northrop Fry, and, and you see how there is this this pattern of the comedy throughout the scriptures. And, and here's where I want to say that that's not... Si because sometimes we talk about history as being cyclical, a cycle, right? And, and that's what I don't want you to see. History is not cyclical, okay? Oh, yes, there is a repetition of sins, but history is not cyclical. History is always moving to a point. Amen? And that, that's why I, wanna, I want you to see, because it's moving. It's moving. It's moving. And it's moving. Not in a straight line, but it's moving upwards. So, there is no identical recapitulation. And that's how God works through history. That's how God works through history. The history of the, the, the Scriptures is how God works through history. And, and as we are going to see, that's basically the, the history of Jesus' life. He embodies the history of redemption. So, we have Eden, this beautiful place. Adam, Eve, and then there is the fall. Some people don't like the, the name fall. I have heard people say, oh, we should not call that fall. First of all, that's how Paul labels. For we all have what? fallen short. So fall is a wonderful way of describing sin because we were in Adam in the mountain of the Lord, in the garden of Eden, and we descend. We fall from there into the wilderness. Exile. Get out of my mountain. The mountain is shut. That's the question throughout the scriptures. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And then they go down. Begins well, go down. Wilderness. A city. The city of man, Cain. Not only that, but water. Flood. There's kind of a recreation right there. So you have water, wilderness, until God calls Abraham. And then the process starts going up with Abraham. Right? To bless the nations. He arrives and he saddles. He has a descendants. Remember, Isaac, Jacob, 12 kids. That grows into a big nation. And then what happens? How does Genesis end? Egypt. Go down. Egypt. Wilderness, water, death, until God raises who? Moses and Joshua. The story goes up. They sat in the land. Goes down again with the judges. Remember, especially the Philistines. You have all sorts of enemies, but especially the Philistines attacking, bothering. They take the ark captive. Have Saul, King Saul, it's not working until the Lord raises whom? David and Solomon. The story goes up. Oh, yes, now we have a happy ending. And we know by the life of David himself, 
and Solomon, that, that cannot be a happy ending, right? How can you have a happy ending with a man who murders, commits adultery? His son practiced polygamy. <laughs> and that would go well. And we know then the, the whole kingdom divides. What happens? Down again. The Assyrian, the Babylonian captivity. The Lord raises Cyrus, whom he calls his anointed one, the king of Persia. And then he sends Zerubbabel, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai. They go back and they go back to the land. Oh. But remember Haggai, Zechariah, they all say that the glory is not there yet. Oh, you could put the, the Maccabees when the Syrians, the Greek, uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes, he comes, Epiphany, he comes, and you have the problem there, goes up again. Then you have the Romans coming with General Pompey and taking over Judah and go down and until Christ comes. So you see, but it's all pointing to the, all, all these stories are showing how there is still no happy ending until Christ comes. When you're expecting a happy ending, finally Abraham, he's going to bless the nations. Mm -mm -mm. Moses, Joshua, mm -mm -mm. David, no. So, and the prophets, and that's what's beautiful, how the Lord was using the prophets to speak of... Uh, a greater redemption that was coming. And, and here's what is important as we are talking about typology, recapitulation. The prophets speak of this great redemption that's coming. And they talk about a new exodus. So for example, Isaiah. You read Isaiah and he's talking about a new exodus. Not the old exodus, a new exodus. A new Zion. A new Jerusalem. A new king. A new Torah. A new covenant. That's very important. But it's all new. So Isaiah says, Behold, I do something what? New. It's not like the old. So yes, Isaiah speaks, speaks of a, a Davidic king, Jerusalem, Exodus. But it's not just a repetition or a cycle. It's something much greater. It's eschatological. It's growing. It's going to be much better. Until, of course, it fulfills with Jesus Christ. And Jesus just embodies the history of His people. He embodies redemptive history. That's the life of Christ. And that's what we read in Philippians 2. From glory to the incarnation, that's basically an exile from all the glory that He had, until the bottom where He's crucified, and then begins the new exodus, the greater exodus, the resurrection, leading to the ascension. Okay, so you see the, the life of Christ is the story of redemption embodied in himself. Okay, as you think about the Bible, Jesus, the living word, embodies the whole word. I hope by your faces, I have no idea if it's clear as night, <laughs> clear as a foggy night, <laughs> or what. <laughs> Okay, so let's move to, we have time, <laughs> let's move to the acts of this glorious drama of redemption. Okay. 
Uh, and we can divide, first we have two major acts. The curtains open, you have Act 1, and that's the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And then we have Act 2, and that's the New Testament or the New Covenant. But in between these two major acts, the, the, the Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, we have, I would say, six, six major acts of this glorious drama. Okay? We have creation, fall and exile, Israel, Christ, church, and then the new creation. And here we see this glorious drama with this comedy ingredient taking place. So, Act 1, creation. Genesis 1, God creates everything by the power of His Word, the emphasis on His Word. Genesis 2, we see the grace of this God in bringing Adam into this beautiful garden and placing Adam in a garden like temple. That's Genesis 2. Everything is going so well. Him and his wife, they have fellowship with God. And then what happens in Genesis 3? We take the fall. As you think about the U-shape, we start going downhill. That's the fall. And why? Because they rebel against God's word. The word that he created, the word that he commanded, the word that he gave as his rule to guide Adam and Eve, they rebel against that word by listening to whose words? The serpent's word. That's fall. We see in Genesis God exiles all the nations. That's the Tower of Babel. God puts into exile. Everybody's farther and farther from His presence. Until we still in the bottom there, God starts... And we think about Genesis 1 through 11. God continues showing His grace with Noah. He has a, a Noahic covenant where He sustains mankind because He's going to continue His glorious drama of redemption. And then we move to Abraham as we think about Israel. And I'm not talking just about the nation of Israel, but that got to go back all the, all the way to Noah as he's preserving that seed from the woman, tracing from Noah to Abraham. And the call of Abraham to bless the nations, the nations that were dispersed in exile. Now they're going to be blessed. They're going to be brought back into God's presence. And then we know Abraham has Isaac. And from Isaac, we have the nation of Israel. But Israel is unable, incapable of fulfilling God's purposes. So just like Adam, just like Adam, here's Israel in this land flowing with milk and honey, this garden of Eden, and what do they do? They reject the word of God, just like Adam. And what does the Lord do with them? Exile. And then comes throughout. So you have all the prophets coming and speaking of a greater redemption. Something better that will take place where Emmanuel, God himself, must come. If there must be a better exodus than what Moses accomplished, God himself must perform that. Amen? And that's all we see as the prophets are speaking about that. So that's Act 4, 
the curtains open for the New Testament with Christ coming as the fulfillment of all those expectations and hopes of the Old Testament. He comes in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Paul says. And it seems like it's going to become a tragedy. What is a tragedy? As we are talking about literature, something with a, with a sad ending. It's the opposite of a comedy. Right? When Jesus dies on the cross, the abomination of desolation, the abomination of all abominations, God hanging naked on a Roman cross. What a tragedy. Buried. But then, what takes place? The resurrection. And then the story takes the upward shape. It starts going up. And we have Pentecost. The ascension of Christ. The giving of the Holy Spirit. The forming of these new people. This new covenant people. The church. Turn with me to Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. The Ecclesia, the church. That was the name given to Israel under the Old Covenant as they would assemble. And now it's given to all those who are in Christ Jesus, who is the true Israel. So in Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And what is the mystery? The mystery has been revealed as the church, Jews and Gentiles together in Christ who created all things, listen to this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that's why I say that now with the church, the theater of God's glory, I don't see primarily as creation, but as the church. The church is the primary theater where God is displaying the glory of His wisdom. And there is no other place in creation that you can have a glimpse or a taste of the new creation but the church. The church, as Horton says, is the foothold in this world where people can have a glimpse of the new creation. Where people with all these different backgrounds, different races, all come together loving one another in Christ, helping one another, serving one another. And then moves to the last act, the new creation. That's the final, when Jesus brings the consummation of all that He already started. And that's the new creation. So from creation to new creation, that's the comic drum of the Bible. We dwelling with God in a greater, better Garden of Eden. Beholding His face, enjoying Him forever. So, what is comic about this drama is that so many people right now, they hate, they hate the church. They hate the church. 
not realizing that the church is the only, the only taste that they can have of the new creation. We know that because God has given us, He has cast us into the row of exiles and aliens here. So that's our row in this drama right now. As the world look at us, we are exiles and strangers and aliens. And our message, according to Paul, is foolishness. But the day is coming when things will change. So, here's the thing. If this story, if the drum of redemption is not shaping your life, is not controlling your life, is not filling with joy and hope and holiness, there is another story that's shaping your life. There is no neutrality. We are being shaped by a story. We are either being shaped by the drama, the truth of the drama of redemption, or we are, or we are being shaped by a lie. That's it. So let me ask you, what is shaping your life? What is shaping your life? And sadly, it's heartbreaking to see so many Christians now in the drama of the American dream, trying to get richer, more comfortable, more, more comfort, I need more stuff. Debt upon debt. Why? They bought into this story of the American dream. I need a better house. I need a better car. I need more junk. I need more stuff. Others bought into the story or the drama of fear. It's all about fear. Fear of vaccines. Fear of the government taking over. Fear of food shortage. Fear of famine. Fear. And you just talk, it's just fear and fear. Others bought the drum of evil. Everything is evil. They just talk about evil. Evil in the government, evil in the schools, evil there, evil in the church, evil, evil, evil. We need to get into this story and let this story shape our lives. Because as this story shape our, our lives, honestly, we see evil. We see evil. But we know that evil has not the last word. It's not like you, you enter this story and you become blind to what's going on. No, it's there you see what truly is going on. That's what takes place. It allows us to see that, yes, there is much evil. We will suffer. We will be, be persecuted. We will go through the sword, famine, pestilence. But in all these things, we are what? What? More than conquerors. In all these things. That's what the drum of redemption allows us. And that's why we have a wonderful history of martyrs in the church. Because they know the true story. And they allow the true story to shape and take over their lives. And sadly, we are lacking that in the church. We are lacking this beautiful drama of God's glorious redemption. So much of biblical counseling in the churches are verses here and there. 
throwing a verse here, throwing a verse there, and people will not be changed. They will not be shaped by a verse here and there. They need to realize this beautiful drama, this epic, this comedy, and where they are in this story. That's what people need to be changed. David Murray, he says, it's, it's missing uh, the verb there. It's God's glorious drama of redemption. His comedy of grace in Christ that interprets, confronts, reshapes, and even redeems or condemns our, our, all our, our stories. When we are swept into God's story, God becomes the center of the story. And when God is the center of the story, it's much easier to see how every part of my story is connected to His how everything harm, harmonizes. When you see God's story, you will sense your, your, your life's many fragments coming together with gigantic purpose, new unity, and comforting cohesiveness. And I want to finish with one more verse. This beautiful comedy has one who laughs. Psalm chapter 2. He who sits in the heavens, what? Why is he laughing? He who tells the story, what? Rules the world. Exactly. He's the one who tells the story, and he's the one who controls and rules the world. And that's why he laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in the region. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, he goes on, he says, Kiss the son. Kiss the son. Embrace the son of God. And that's my prayer. And that's my exhortation to all of us. Kiss the son. Embrace the son. And embark in this story here. Let this story shape our lives. Amen? Father, thank you for your love and your care towards us in giving us your covenantal revelation. Oh, how beautiful it is, your word, and how we need that, Lord. We need your truth to shape us, reshape us, to kill us, to make us alive again. So please, please do that in our lives. Help us as a church to realize that the story that's been told outside is a lie. We have the true story. And you who tell this story rules the world. Help us to be excited about this story. Help us to read this story with eagerness. With reverence. And with a hunger to be changed, Lord. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.